Chapter 9 of A Casket of Cameos. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Casket of Cameos by Frank W. Borum. John Bright's Text 1. The only geographical discovery that could fittingly be named after John Bright would be a range of sky-piercing and snow-capped mountains. As you contemplate his burly figure, bold, resolute, almost defiant, and as you gaze upon his leonine head, crowned during his later and greater years with hair of snowy whiteness, the comparison is simply forced upon you. Everything about him is massive, majestic, mountainous. In his company, even in the company of his biography, you feel that you are among the beetling crags, the rugged slopes, the scarped peaks, the grand and awful summits. In her records of a Quaker family, Mrs. Boyce casually observes that the physical appearance of John Bright stood out in strong and striking contrast against that of most of the young Quakers of his time. The prevailing type, she says, was tall, thin, long-faced and regular-featured. But Bright's robust figure, his strength of chest and limb, his honest face and resolute carriage, the head thrown defiantly back, the sensitive mouth set as firmly as if he were facing a howling mob or standing at the bar of a hostile court, reminded you of the stalwart leaders of classical times. So sturdy Cromwell pushed broad-shouldered on, so burly Luther breasted Babylon. Moreover, his life is in keeping with his looks. The heroic achievements of his illustrious career, his gallant fight for the food of the people, his fearless championship of the American slave, his stubborn insistence on the enfranchisement of the cottager, his uncompromising stand for civil and religious liberty, his dauntless struggle on behalf of European peace tower up before the fancy of the student of his life-story like the virgin summits of the Himalayas. His character, as Mr. Gladstone feelingly remarked in the House of Commons, his character is one which we instinctively regard, not merely with admiration nor even with gratitude, but with reverential contemplation. Mr. Gladstone's phrase reminds me of the awe that has often hushed my soul into silence, as in New Zealand I have gazed upon the white, white mountains. Bright's form is mountainous, his mind is mountainous, his very speech is mountainous. He stands firm-footed and square-shouldered before his audience, solid and stationary. He never ramps, never raves never screams, never storms. He seldom moves a foot or waves a hand. Yet he awes his listeners by the very calm of his passion. His views, as Mr. Trevelyan finally says, are as limpid and resistant as a block of crystal. In reading his record, we are exploring the ranges all the time. 2. Yes, we are among the mountains, and the mountains are the home of mystery. The eternal hills subdue us by their silence. They seem to nurse a secret. So did John Bright. He impressed men by his very quietude. 
His stillness was the eloquent expression of his strength. His great soul seemed to gather calm and courage from a vision of other worlds. Mr. Augustine Burrell always felt that the attitude of Mr. Bright's mind was that of a solitary. He seemed to be brooding on thoughts too vast for utterance. He literally walked with God. Deep in his heart, his biographer tells us, there lies always something unseen, something reserved and solitary. Although he was a popular hero, and a man so sociable that he never traveled by train, but he drew into conversation his chance carriage companions. Though he was always happy and tender and talkative when wife or child or friend were near, yet the presence of an inner life of deep feeling and meditation could be felt as the moving power of all that he did. A secret, a something unseen, an inner life of deep feeling. But the most impressive witness as to all this is Lord Morley, then plain John Morley. Everybody knows Lord Morley's attitude towards religion. But Lord Morley, in his Voltaire, tells us that the brilliant Frenchman was more affected by the transparent sincerity and simple piety of the English Quakers than by all the arguments for Christianity advanced by the schoolmen. Lord Morley may have been speaking feelingly, for he himself confessed that the most pure and impressive piece of religion that he ever witnessed was John Bright reading a chapter of the Bible to his maid-servants shortly after his wife's death, in his beautiful and feeling voice, followed by a Quaker silence. Lord Morley ranks John Bright with John Hampton, John Selden, John Pym, and the great Puritans, men who, in Macaulay's classic phrase, were not content to catch occasional glimpses of the deity through an obscuring veil, but aspired to gaze full on his intolerable brightness and commune with him face to face. It was this, says Lord Morley, that made John Bright the glory of the House of Commons. He sometimes startled men by unexpectedly drawing the veil and revealing the imminence of the unseen and eternal. Dr. Dale describes one of his great orations. It was delivered in the Birmingham Town Hall. The chairs had been removed so that as many as possible could be crowded into the building. Five thousand men stood on the floor, packed so tightly that they could not raise their hands from their sides to applaud. Mr. Bright had recently been ill, and he began by reverently expressing his gratitude to God for his recovery. Dr. Dale says that the hush that fell on the vast and excited assembly, as soon as he began to speak, deepened into awe. We had expected a fierce assault on his political opponents, but the storms of party passion were for a moment stilled we suddenly found ourselves in the presence of the Eternal, and some of us, perhaps, rebuked ourselves in the words of the Patriarch, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. Here, then, is the man, a mountainous man, a man who, like the mountains, lifts his head to the skies and cherishes in solitude a wondrous secret. Now what is that secret? And how and when did he learn it? And what if the secret proved to be a text? 
3. John Bright's text was as mountainous as the man himself, as mountainous as everything about him. For John Bright's text was the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount was not only delivered on a mount, it is a mount. It is a lofty eminence standing out boldly against the skyline of all our little earthly horizons. It is a range of sunlit heights whose terrific grandeur has taunted and challenged and beckoned the pilgrims of the ages. And if, as they essayed the superb adventure, they sometimes scaled the slopes with aching sinews and with bleeding feet, they nevertheless struggled bravely upwards with eager hearts and radiant faces. The public life of John Bright was, as he himself put it, one long endeavor to inscribe the Sermon on the Mount on the pages of the statute book. No man of his time could quote Scripture as John Bright could quote it. When it was whispered through the lobbies of the House of Commons that Bright was up, the chamber instantly filled. Lord Morley considers him the stateliest and most finished orator to whom the House of Commons has ever listened. I have met men, he says, who have heard Pitt and Fox, and in whose judgment their eloquence at its best was inferior to the finest efforts of John Bright. And by universal consent, the most impressive passages in those masterpieces of English rhetoric were his appeals to the majesty and authority of Scripture. In his deep voice, and with his simple dignity, he would cite some noble phrase from prophet or psalmist or seer, and his hearers would somehow feel that he had lifted the question beyond the range of argument. A gentleman who heard him speak at Bradford in 1877 wrote to a London paper in 1909 to say that he could never forget how Mr. Bright's voice swelled and grew in depth and volume, as it was wont to do when he was deeply moved, as he referred to the Sermon on the Mount. Mr. Bright repeated, as only he could have done, the blessings uttered by the divine lips upon the poor in spirit, the mourners, the meek, the hungerers after righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, and the peacemakers. And then, having impressively recited these beatitudes and quoted other appropriate expressions from the Sermon on the Mount, he summed up his aim and that of his associates by saying, We have tried to put holy writ into an act of Parliament. His friendship with Cobden, one of the most potent factors in his career, culminated in an incident in which the Sermon on the Mount figures conspicuously. It was Cobden who gave Bright his mission. The story is very familiar. It is one of the most tender idols in the public life of England. Bright's beautiful young wife, to whom he was devotedly attached, had been suddenly snatched from him. Bright was inconsolable. Let him tell his own story. It was in 1841, he says, the sufferings throughout the country were fearful. I was at Leamington, and on the day when Cobden called upon me, for he happened to be there at the time on a visit to some relatives, I was in the depths of grief, I might almost say despair, 
for the light and sunshine of my house had been extinguished. All that was left on earth of my young wife, except the memory of a sainted life and a too brief happiness, was lying still and cold in the chamber above us. Mr. Cobden called upon me and addressed me, as you might suppose, with words of condolence. After a time he looked up and said, There are thousands of houses in England at this moment where wives, mothers, and children are dying of hunger. Now, he said, when the first paroxysm of your grief is past, I would advise you to come with me, and we will never rest till the Corn Law is repealed. I accepted his invitation. I knew that the description he had given of the homes of thousands was not an exaggerated description. I felt in my conscience that this was a work which somebody must do, and therefore I accepted his invitation, and from that time we never ceased to labor hard in fulfillment of the resolution which we had made. During the seven years that followed, the Reformers endured every form of ignominy, ridicule, and persecution, but they struggled on until their cause was triumphant, and the whole world was ringing with their fame. A few years later, Bright is again overwhelmed with grief. Cobden himself is dead. John Bright is in the darkened home. This morning, he says, I spent a long time, probably near two hours, in the library where the body is, with the children. Standing by me, and leaning on the coffin, was his sorrowing daughter, one whose attachment to her father seems to have been a passion scarcely equaled amongst daughters. She said, My father used to like me very much to read to him the Sermon on the Mount. He said it was so very beautiful. His own life was, to a large extent, a sermon based upon that text, the greatest of all sermons. His life was a life of perpetual self-sacrifice. I have sometimes wondered whether Cobden's fondness for the Sermon on the Mount was the result of his intimacy with Bright. At any rate, the terms in which Mr. Bright records the incident sufficiently reflect the reverent affection that he always cherished for that monumental fragment of sacred literature. 4. There is an old legend of a boy who gazed so frequently and so steadfastly at the portrait of a face that he admired, that little by little his own features came to resemble those in the painting. Something of the kind happened in the case of John Bright. He not only loved the Sermon on the Mount, he became the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, says a well-known commentator, stands between the Old Testament and the New, and it gathers to itself all that is best in both. Strangely enough, John Bright's biographer makes a very similar remark in reference to him. In him were blended, says Mr. Trevelyan, the Old Testament and the New, the two indispensable contradictories that man must learn to reconcile within his breast. By careful search, 
some rudiments of these two opposites can be found in each of us. But in none did they come to such double perfection as in John Bright. Men who loved the Sermon on the Mount delighted in his company. Men who would have been rebuked by its perusal were rebuked by his silent presence. The life of John Bright is the finest commentary on the Sermon on the Mount that has ever been published. One of these days, some commanding literary genius will give us a volume containing the Sermon on the Mount, sentence by sentence, and against each sentence he will reproduce some speedily illuminative extract from the speeches or biography of John Bright. This is how he will go about it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, says the first clause of the Sermon on the Mount. And against it our literature will give the passage telling of Mr. Bright's ceaseless ministry to the cripple woman among the Welsh hills. Or if he prefers an extract from one of his hero's election speeches, he will give us this passage delivered at Durham. Rich and great people can take care of themselves, said Mr. Bright. But the poor and defenceless, the men with small cottages and large families, the men who must work six full days every week if they are to live in anything like comfort for a week, these men want defenders. They want champions to state their case in Parliament. They want men who will protest against any infringement of their rights. Blessed are the merciful, says the Sermon on the Mount. When Sir Henry Hawkins was made a judge, and he became the greatest criminal judge that our courts have ever known, he met John Bright at dinner. Sir Henry told Mr. Bright of his elevation, and expected his congratulations. But, says Sir Henry, he simply put his hand on my shoulder, and in a voice of deep emotion, said, Be merciful, Hawkins! Be merciful. And anybody who cares to look up a certain issue of Punch published in February 1887 will find a particularly beautiful poem in celebration of the skill with which Sir Henry mingled mercy with justice. Blessed are the peacemakers, says the Sermon on the Mount. When, in 1855, the nation was swept off its feet by the fever of war, Bright brought upon himself the furious indignation of the whole community by his passionate pleadings for peace. The angel of death is abroad throughout the land, he exclaimed in the House of Commons, and amidst a tense and strained silence, in the course of which he glanced at the vacant seats of members who had fallen, he added, you may almost hear the beating of his wings. After the speech, Bright told a friend, I went into Bellamy's to have a chop. Disraeli came and sat down beside me. Bright, he said, I would give all that I ever had to have made the speech that you made just now. Blessed are the pure in heart, says the Sermon on the Mount. John Bright loved all pure and beautiful things. He never tired of the sight of mountain and stream, says Mr. Trevelyan, or of the sound of Milton and the Bible passages. 
The last photograph ever taken of him represents him with his arm round his little granddaughter, and the last half-conscious caress of his dying hand rested on the head of his little dog fly. End of chapter 9